Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. Tax Reform 2.0 to the OECD's latest developments on Pillar 2. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in our Washington, D.C. Policy on Demand studio, where I'm excited to have Mike Erse back on the podcast. Mike is an international tax partner, part of PwC's Washington National Tax Services, and former U.S. International Tax Services leader. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Doug. It's great to be here. So, Mike, it was a little over four years ago, if you can believe it, in a makeshift podcast studio in our colleague Jeff Jacoby's office, where you joined me as the inaugural guest for the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. Well, here we are. This thing has been downloaded hundreds of thousands of times for our 100th episode of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. Congratulations, Doug. It's been great listening to them. Thank you. It, it has been a ton of fun, and it's, it, I've just been really, frankly, shocked by um, all of the reactions that I've gotten and the people that are listening from various you know, tax lawyers, accountants, frankly, people from the government, people from outside the U.S., and for those that are actually have not tuned in yet on YouTube, we actually have some special 100 episode balloons here in the background. So for those that are listening, check, check us out on YouTube. So, so Mike, <clears throat> excuse me, before I took this role as the U.S. International Tax Services leader, you mentored me on how important it is to build a strong team and surround myself with talented people. So before we get into the material today, I wanted to thank a few of the people that have helped make these 100 podcasts happen over the last four years, including Jeff Jacoby, Paul Gilmerian, Jen Kelly, Brad, Rob, amongst many others that have been involved in this. Um, I also wanted to thank Jim Fuller, Lee Shepard, and Mindy Herzfeld, who really inspired me to create a podcast version of what they've done in the written medium for international tax over the last several decades. I can only hope that the cross-border tax talks can have a similar legacy. So Mike, let's get into the good stuff here. Um, I wanted to talk to you about kind of the current status of holding companies, financing companies, and IP companies. Really three common elements of an international tax planning strategy that frankly we've been using for decades. And, and Mike, you have been practicing, and I'm going to date you here, international tax for almost 40 years. And you've witnessed many changes to the international tax rules in the U.S. and globally. There are only so many that were around during uh, 86, 87 time period as well. But does the current moment, as particularly as we think about pillars one and two, um, in a global system of taxation and with all the other changes represent the biggest transformation of our industry that you've seen in your career? It's definitely like that, Doug. I, I would say that this is a, a transformational period. I mean, you think about TCJA and all the changes to how we tax foreign dividends. Which is where that podcast started four years ago. Right. We were talking about That's that. That's right. The advent of Guilty and Beat and Fitty. But layer onto that, all of the foreign changes, all of the ATAD rules, all the hybridity rules. Um, and Multilateral the, instrument, did and, you ever think that would be possible? And you layer on pillar two. The way I think about international taxation now is planning in a three-dimensional world. Because we've always thought about foreign tax planning 
We've always understood US subpart F and guilty, but now we have a third leg. We have to always consider what the pillar two impact is of our planning. So it's, it's a very dynamic world right now. And of course, we're still waiting to see where everything falls out. That's right, because we're recording this. It's June, 2022. We're waiting for the implementation framework. Right. We're anxiously waiting for the UK to potentially provide some, some proposed rules. Still a lot of uncertainty, but it certainly seemed that the winds are headed towards uh, implementation of Pillar 2. The question that really, in my view, is when. It's more about when, not if. And I and the other big question mark is what what's gonna happen with a slim down BBB. Right. So. Yeah, and so we'll we'll probably know that pretty quickly with what would happen with potentially what I, we've been referring to here on the cross border tax talks is the U.S. tax reform 2.0. It, it feels right. like it's on life support at this point, but we'll find out if we end up with country by country right. guilty because obviously, as we've spent a lot of time talking about here on the podcast, that could have significant implications of whether guilty is considered a qualifying IR regime for for pillar two. So I wanted to kind of break today's conversation into really kind of three, what I would call kind of core planning elements that, that we've seen in international tax structures and really how they've evolved over the course of the last 20, 30 years. And I thought I would start with holding companies. And so, you know, I think it was very common historically for a U.S. multinational or even a non-U.S. multinational to set up an investment vehicle or a holding company, a legal entity to hold international operations. And so, Mike, maybe we'll, uh, we'll start with why, particularly for U.S. multinationals, why did companies do that? And then I want to talk about, well, what's changed and right. are these still really fit for purpose? Well, holding companies are very common. Um, U.S. companies went heavily into Europe after World War II and um, in the 90s started to go to China and Asia. Um, the biggest reason people used holding companies was to prevent dividend taxation by the U.S. So as cash built up, because we taxed dividends pre-TCJA, uh, people used holding companies to redeploy foreign cash. So they'd take cash out of a, a strong cash generating low taxed entity, distribute it to their hold co, and then they could either buy more foreign acquisitions or capitalize companies that needed cash. So it just prevented um, bringing that cash home and paying a top up tax. But there were a lot of other reasons too. I mean, in, in some cases, people bought groups that. Right foreign targets that that were foreign, that had holding companies. Or that um, ultimately became a holding company, right? If a U.S. multinational but by a French sure. parented entity, I'm not sure France, anybody would consider a great holding company jurisdiction, but the fact is if you buy a French parented company, you've just, you now have a French holding company. You have a French holding company and a lot of those are hard to unwind right. because in some cases it's very costly to, to out from under those subs from that French holding company. but. There's also, um, you know, accessing treaty networks. There's um, there are business considerations. A lot of holding companies have a, a, a treasury center or finance or management folks. Um, it could be an operating company, but there's a whole list of reasons people had holding companies. But and they also had havens as holding companies in some cases. But uh, I would say the bulk of them were Dutch. Uh, Lux, UK, Singapore, mm -hmm. those were probably the most Switzerland, used. Switzerland, I might put in that list. Switzerland, 
except for the fact that there's a withholding tax. Right, but, right. But yeah, I'd say, but yeah. So for the U.S. companies, you mean, yeah. That. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, you had mentioned havens, um, which is generally a bad word around here, but uh, a lot has changed, right, over the course of the, the last, I mean, even since I've been practicing for the last 25 years. You know, one of the other big changes that we've seen really over the last 10, 10 or so years, it was the use of what we would refer to as reverse hybrids, right? Mm -hmm. So transparent entities from a local perspective that we could elect to treat as corporations for U.S. tax purposes. And we'll talk a little bit about this in the context of holding company and IP companies. I think that, you know, we saw a lot of that kind of ex explanation of those structures and some of the state aid documentation kind of explaining mm -hmm. how some of those structures work. and. I mean, at this point, most of those jurisdictions where you would commonly see some of these reverse hybrids, to your point, Netherlands, Luxembourg, and the UK, now all treat those, generally speaking, as tax residents. That's right. And so there's some been, been some big foreign law changes that have really have really changed the game from a from a holding company perspective. The the one other piece that I did want to mention that you know where, where we talk about holding companies maybe as a an investment vehicle for U.S. for for U.S. multinationals or even foreign multinationals, and then what I kind of think of as the accidental or the acquired holding company when you acquire a foreign parent. That and and we had Puneet on uh, a, a, a number of of weeks ago, who is our you know global structuring financial services leader, and you know particularly in the FS space, the need for an investment vehicle, which sure. kind of by default is a holding company, and That's I right. think that. Um, the the implementation of, of the MLI and some various changes and various in, in, in countries to determine whether you can even access the treaty and get to lower withholding taxes. We think about ATAD three. Maybe what are some of the challenges today as companies, you know, to the extent that they have holding companies? That what are some of the challenges that companies need to think through? Well, you, you have to start with what does the MLI and what does ATAD 3 do to particularly US-based multinationals? And if you think about it, those provisions are gonna enable European governments to deny use of the directives, the parent subdirective or mm -hmm. the interest and royalty directive, or deny the use of treaties. And of course, the MLI is in fact, usually got a gar in it that will enable a country to deny use of a treaty if they see a holding company above it that is there for an, a, a treaty abuse reason. And a gar is a general anti-abuse uh, anti rule to try to prevent the, the use right. of the entity to reduce withholding taxes. So when you're in a world where you have many foreign entities and you've got holding companies, I think you have to ask the question, is your entity fit for purpose? Because if it can't access treaty networks or access parent subdirectives in Europe, then you're subject to potential withholding as you bring cash home. And in the world of the post-TCJA, where withholding taxes generally aren't gonna be creditable because either they relate to 245 income, which is the tax-free dividend Which is tax-free, or they, are related to guilty income, and most people already have too many guilty credits, so additional withholding in the guilty basket doesn't do anything for you. Yeah, it's an absolute, what you're saying is those withholding taxes are an absolute cost. That's because right. Because most companies' blended rates are well above 10.5 or 13.125, right. so that they can't use those credits. So the, the clear trend is for companies to look at their structures and decide 
do I have a good reason for this holding company? Is there a business reason for it? And what are my MLI and ATAD3 risks with it? And if you don't have the right substance in that holding company, uh, there is a clear trend to flatten structures. Mm -hmm. People are um, getting rid of CVs and SCSs. Uh, they're getting rid of Haven holding companies um, because they tend to not have any people in them. And you know, in when you look at ATAD3, which is a directive that's effective in January of 2024, mm -hmm. um, it, it really has looks a, back. It looks back now. two years mm -hmm. at the kind of income and assets held by a holding company. So during 22 and 23, and if your holding company earns a lot of passive income, which they typically do because the dividend is passive, right? Um, you have to meet certain tests. Like, do you have premises? Do you have a bank account? Do you have a resident director who's there doing things? And if you don't, do you have a majority of your employees in that country who are helping with the, the profit-making activities of that entity? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people just flunk those tests mm -hmm. because they're, they don't have people in country. Um, and so what's gonna happen is under ATAD 3, you have to report as a company whether you meet these thresholds. And as you report to your country of residents, they're going to then determine that you do not uh, qualify for a tax residency certificate. And that gets shared with other EU members. So the other 26 members of the EU right. are notified that your Dutch holding company has no substance. Right. And so if you're a Spanish or an Italian or other country paying a dividend to that Dutch company, you're very likely to withhold then. So it's a, it's a real you know, call to action to get people to take a look at their structures. Right, and, and I think the challenge that we've seen is that if companies do wanna get, get out of their holding companies or eliminate the holding companies, then obviously, going back to the French point, you have to understand what are those implications of potentially liquidating or selling That's foreign right. subsidiaries out and understanding is there a participation exemption right. um, or is there some other type of capital gains exemption in the jurisdiction to potentially minimize the amount of tax. And I think a number of jurisdictions, including the Netherlands, which have kind of implemented some of their own version of 7874 and the anti-inversion rules, can make that more challenging to, to, to try to, to, try to right. get rid of those holding companies. But you're right, with, with, with the TCJA for USMNCs, we can bring cash back to the US. It's either PTAP or 245 CAP A eligible, so tax-free as it comes back to the US. Maybe the, the last point or question for you on uh, on holding companies is, talk about a little bit about pillar two and the income inclusion rule. Right. I think that may just be another reason to really question right. whether your holding company is fit for purpose. And, and before I answer that, I, I will say, you don't have to necessarily leave a country that doesn't have substance. Some, some companies are actually moving people to bulk up the substance of their holding yeah, company. To meet the ATAD 3 requirements, And if you example. do that, that's just fine. And then you don't have to worry about exit costs of doing it out from under. Great point. But on, on your pillar two question, again, if you look at the Fortune 1000, I, I would bet half of them have European holding companies. UK, Dutch, Lux, Swiss. Well, Swiss is not in the EU, but. Right, right. Uh, but 
there's quite a number of companies that have a European holding company. And the issue that r arises from Pillar 2 is the, the one-year lag in the implementation of the IIR, the Income Inclusion Rule, and the UTPR, the Under Tax Profits Rule. And so if you just follow the EU proposal that the French made, which is the IIR in 24, the UTPR in 25, and the rumors coming out of the OECD are that they are going to delay their timing to match the Europeans. Mm -hmm. That would say that if you're a U.S. company and you're getting, um, you have a EU holding company in 2024, it may very likely have implemented an IIR and it's not clear whether the U.S. Congress will have a guilty system that's compliant with Pillar 2 by then. Right. Whether it's either, and we, we talked about this with Mindy Hertzfeld on a couple podcasts ago on whether guilty could potentially be a qualifying IIR or a qualifying CFC, so we don't need to. That's right. So, so if there is no compliant IIR in the United States, then in 2024, if the Dutch or Lux holding company owns a low tax entity, let's say a Swiss principal, then you would have taxing rights in Luxembourg or Holland uh, over that undertaxed profit. And so for that reason... Assuming that at that point Swiss hasn't implemented its own qualifying domestic minimum top-up tax. But, but if they follow the OECD model, they would have done that in 25 right. as a UTPR. But so, so there is this one-year tax on low-taxed income that could be ceded to a European nation. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, a number of US companies are looking at whether they should pull out entities that are subject to a low 15% ETR from their European holding structures. Got it, so let's, let's move on to, to financing companies. And um, you know, I think that we, we've seen kind of a similar to holding companies really over the course of the last you know, at least 25 years, mm -hmm. really a movement from you know, tax havens and some of the lower tax, even some of the reverse hybrids to, to the fact that because of all the reasons that we talked about related to a holding company, changes to the treaties and anti-abuse rules and anti-hybrid rules, for example, that the, the, the trend that we're seeing is much more substantive financing activities, lending, hedging, actual real finance people, mm -hmm. cash pooling, um, whether it's notional or physical cash pooling. But um, I thought maybe we would talk about financing companies in, in the context of maybe borrowers and lenders and some mm -hmm. of the, the trends that you're seeing. So what about from a borrower jurisdiction perspective? And then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the lenders and the financing company jurisdictions. So I think, um you raised the first initial point. I think the um, importance about intercompany lending is to have the right substance in your lender. Um, that's clear from you know BEPS 2.0. Um, but intercompany lending will be alive and well for many, many years to come. So examples of that. So borrowers you're asking about. Mm -hmm. So borrowers, I'd say there are probably a group of four types of borrowers that would be interested in their company lending. Number one would be uh, anybody doing an acquisition. It would be very common for your acquisition company, let's say in Germany, to borrow in company to help buy a German target. Mm -hmm. um, so 
who that lender is we'll, we'll talk about. A uh, second category would be there are companies all over the world that need financing. They might have a plan expansion. They right. might need working capital. Um, so those companies would borrow intercompany and they, many of them tend to have high tax rates because a lot of the developed world has rates in the mid-20s. Mm -hmm. um, a third example would be a company that, like the U.S., the U.S. Um, needs a lot of cash because they pay dividends, they borrow the most money, and sometimes you just can't get dividends to the U.S. because there might be a blockage in your structure, like a distributable reserves issue. So some companies will lend around that blockage to the U.S. so that you can access that cash. And, and your point of that excess cash, because I think it's an important one, is means that you can just simply repay principal. So as opposed to necessarily having a structural loan in place for multiple years, put some debt in place to be able to then, instead of making a dividend up through the chain, you just simply repay the principal. And so the cash management, I think, is a very important point right. um, that a number of taxpayers will use to help you know, the treasurers need to be able to manage their cash from a global perspective. Right, and, and then there's a fourth group of borrowers, and that's just treasury centers. There's right. a lot of companies with treasury centers that don't uh, themselves need the money, but then they unlend it to the necessary borrowers. So um, those are the borrowers. The lenders um, traditionally have been the low-taxed entities. We obviously used uh, zero-taxed havens for many, many years. Um, that became more difficult with anti-hybrid rules. Yeah. Um, and there's also withholding issues. Right. Many changes um, to trees. So it's the, the, the direction of travel has been to go to, I would call a modestly taxed finance co. Um, those tend to meet the requirements of the anti-hybridity rules. But the problem that is coming around the curve is we're moving to a 15% world with a global minimum tax and likely changes to, you know, guilty. So it, it seems to me that to the extent those, that list of borrowers exists at your company, um, it wouldn't surprise me that the lenders would tend to line up to be 15% lenders. Right. But other lenders would include NOL companies. Let's say you had a French company that had a, a big loss from its Maybe business. it was a bad investment, right. Exactly. And if you lend money to, say, Italy or Germany, there's no tax on that income in France. But you do have to be careful of the book impact because as you establish that loan, you're going to probably book a deferred tax asset for the use of that NOL, which is a book benefit, mm -hmm. but as you earn interest from Germany, you're going to have to deplete that asset on your balance sheet, so there's a book charge every year. So you can use a, an NOL company to lend on a cash-free basis, tax-free, mm -hmm. but there would be a book charge on an ongoing basis. Um, yeah, there, al along those lines, Mike, the, the U.S. with our 163J limitation rules, particularly now that the DA is gone, and we'll see what the, the fate of the DA is. But, right. And then as we think about Build Back Better, and you know that's on life support, but as we think about 163N, there is a question of, well, does the U.S., is the U.S. a good jurisdiction, despite the fact that it's 21%, 
if there is a U.S. multinational that is 163J limited, in other words, limited from the amount of interest expense that it can deduct, you know, maybe it should just be the lender and then that interest income, frankly, soaks up some of that 163J carry forward. You have a similar book issue to, to think about, you know, given that the fact that 163J is generally a indefinite carry forward. So always understanding the book implications, but from a cash tax perspective, similar to your French example with 163J, the U.S. could potentially be even considered a, a good lender. It could be. Um, the U.S would work in certain circumstances. You do have to watch out for FX. Absolutely. Um, and there is a pillar two rule about using an attribute like a 163J or a 163N carry forward that could count against you, but that may not matter depending on the ETR of your US group, but um, that's certainly a possibility. I think the other thing that people should realize is if you look at around the world, and the average rates being, let's say, 24, 25% for a lot of the developed world, there will probably emerge a number of finance companies that are just Irish or Swiss, just good old 15% lenders that have treasury centers in right. them. And you're gonna have probably no withholding in most cases because of those treaty networks mm -hmm. or EU directives. So I think the, um, I think the direction of travel will be, again, continued intercompany lending and a little bit more substance in the FinCos. Yeah, and I, that's a common theme, right, that we, we keep talking about. We're yeah. gonna move to IPCOs here in a minute, but you know, really, where are those treasury functions? Where is the substance? And we talked about even the context of holding companies and frankly, aligning some of that holding company substance with the treasury substance makes a lot of sense. So, exactly. you know, you can imagine companies that do wanna, for, for whatever reason, wanna have holding companies, whether it's an investment vehicle, as we had mentioned, whether they had acquired it, whatever the case may be, the need to be able to really align the substance with the, uh, with the underlying activities, whether it's holding companies and financing is certainly a trend um, that, that is not going away. No. So um, let's talk about intellectual property companies because theirs have been, I mean, a lot of changes in, in this area over the course of the last you know, 10, 10 to 20 years. And, you know, and I think that, you know, some of the changes that, and, and scrutiny that we're seeing for IP holding, or for, excuse me, for financing companies and holding companies, frankly, the IP companies were already subject to some of that scrutiny. And specifically, really the, the requirement for DEMPI functions and, and aligning proper substance and, and really where do companies do their R&D? Where do they do the development? Like where are those business functions is really driving the decisions on where should be the IP? And then obviously there are tax implications as well as we think about FDII as well. But maybe talk a little bit about what trends you're seeing from an IP perspective. And then I certainly wanna talk about how does pillar two layer onto that? Well, IP management and, and ownership is all over the board. There are many U.S. multinationals that have their IP in the United States. There are many that have them have the foreign rights, yeah, the in, rest of world rights. in in non-U.S. companies. Um, there were there was a time when just pure IP ownership existed without a lot of substance around it, and those entities earned royalties or residual income that was taxed at a low rate. That tr the trend is to move that IP to places where the substance exists. So 
where can the business support the ownership, maintenance, and protection of that IP? I think that's really a fundamental question companies have to ask. So is your IP in the right place? Because we're in a very critical time period now where there is an opportunity to move it to the right location, but if you wait too long, we could get into some pillar two problems. Um, yeah, so, so explain that. So, so why, so just with respect to the, the implementation dates and the timing. And so the model rules have rules relating to transfers of assets between constituent entities. So let's take an example. Let's assume you have your intellectual property in a haven and you've decided you wanted to move it to the United States because all of your R&D development, all your attorneys, legal protections, uh, et cetera, everything that's a dump function is, is in the United States. Plus you, you like the idea of our US competent authority protecting right. your rights to that profit on that IP. Under the model rules, if you move that IP after the rules are in effect, even if you do it in a tax-free way under U.S. rules, let's say you did a 332 liquidation. Yeah, just liquidated it in. That is actually a taxable event under the Pillar 2 rules because the only way you can move an asset between two constituent entities, Bermuda and the United States, is in a tax-free globe reorg, and that provision is very limited. And it actually, we think, only applies within a country. Yeah. So if I merged an Indiana company with a Delaware company, that might be a globe reorg. But moving a Bermuda company into the U.S. certainly isn't. Mm -hmm. And what the rules do is they assert a gain equal to the fair value of the IP at the date of transfer. And of course, there's probably no globe basis in that IP, in that haven. Mm -hmm. So you, you would pay 15% of the fair market value by moving it just onshore to the U.S., which you would think is something the OECD would want to encourage, but unfortunately these rules have some pretty strange uh, implications when it comes to moving assets. So the key is the, the provision that would tax you in that instance, let's say your haven was owned by the U.S. directly and we haven't adopted any changes to guilty, we're not going to tax that 332 liquidation, but we have to be careful of the UTPR. So if 10 or 20 or 30 countries have implemented a UTPR, by the time you did that movement, they could tax that 15% underpayment and they'd share it amongst themselves. So the way around that is if you've decided that your IP is not in a place that's fit for purpose, you ought to try to move it before the rules become effective. So again, going back to the OECD timeline, if they move the UTPR to 2025, that would suggest you have two and a half years. But those are model rules and they're simply guidelines. Companies, countries that implement the UTPR early actually get a benefit because they're gonna be sharing an underpayment with less countries. Mm -hmm. So the original timeline today, which is still in the model rules, is 2024. That tells me if I have IP in the wrong place, probably want to move it within the next 18 months. And if I want to be absolutely certain, I'd want to do it this year. Right, and one important point to note is that 
we are within the transition period. So to the extent that we move it back to the U.S. and you know, try to and, and end up with additional basis, for example, in the U.S. to potentially amortize the way those the model rules and the commentary effectively don't allow you to take advantage of of that um, additional step up or that additional amortization resulting from any transactions that occur within this, you know, within the period before the rule within the transition period. And so I'm with you. It does seem a little kind of counterintuitive to, to, to prevent companies from aligning, or I say to prevent companies from having effectively some sort of penalty that companies might have to pay to try to align IP with their business substance. And so I think your point is well taken. Doing that during the transition period is not going to result in a tax advantage, but what it may do is like potentially reduce the, the hurt that could occur under the new rules. Right. The last thing you want to do is incur a pillar two tax on a future movement of IP. Um, so, and and you're right. During this period, we have section nine point one point three, which mm -hmm. is the anti-abuse rule, which prevents a step up for globe purposes in the basis of the asset you moved. So, but you we do think you would get carryover basis for any globe basis that exists. So, if for example you had Let's say you had IP in Europe that you had acquired for a billion dollars. That billion dollars of basis would be there not just for local tax purposes and not just for U.S. guilty purposes, but it would also be there for globe purposes because it exists as of the start of the mm -hmm. globe rules. So if we liquidated that company, brought the IP here, we would have a carryover of that billion mm -hmm. of basis or whatever is left of the amortizable amount. Right. Um, but you would not, you're right, you wouldn't get a step up. If I had sold it, for example, to the U.S. and used excess guilty credits to cover the cost, I would get amortizable step up here in the U.S. under 197, but I would not get that for globe purposes. Right, assuming you can manage anti-churning and, and That's those, right. those other type of issues. But yeah, um, I, I think it's, it, and the other point that you made, you said in acquisition, I mean, it's really important for companies as they're looking at deals to understand, particularly because, you know, I think what we often would see, whether it's in pharma or tech or any other type of IP rich industry, where the general strategy is after a company makes an acquisition to then move that intellectual property into, you know, the location that has the R&D activities and the substance and everything else. And it's going to be important for taxpayers to understand that there could be significant pillar two implications for that post deal restructuring, right? As they're trying to move stuff around. And it's just the the, the world has changed as, as we think about kind of deal integrations amongst many other reasons. The rules are complicated. I mean, if you, if you're in an a, a third-party acquisition, it is usually better to buy assets now. You get globe basis for that purchase. If you buy stock from a third party, you do not get purchase price adjustments for globe. Mm -hmm. So that means, and as you said, that means I have low basis now in that asset. So if I'm a pharma company and I make a stock acquisition in Europe, and let's say my normal practice is to integrate that IP I've acquired by moving it to the US, that sale to the U.S. is protected under guilty because I got a step up, mm -hmm. it's, um, but it's not gonna be protected locally, yep. and it's not gonna be protected under globe. So if it's a low tax country and there's no tax on the sale, you just have to be careful. You could have a, you could have a tax under pillar two 
that you didn't expect. Well, this is the three-dimensional chess that you described right. at the beginning of the podcast. Exactly. So I think we'll leave it there, Mike. It, it has been a fascinating ride as for my 25 years in this and just seeing the evolution of, of international tax and really kind of some of those those pillars of what we've used, pardon the pun, of holding companies, IP companies, financing companies has certainly changed and, and evolved and lots of things to consider given the, the three-dimensional chess that we need to play as advisors and the taxpayers need, need to, to be mindful of as well. Well, I just appreciate that you invited me back for number 100. Well, hopefully Thank hopefully, you. you don't have to wait another 100 before you come back on. Pat, I think, reminded me that he's been on six times and this was only your second. Okay, so, well, I'll be happy to come back. All right, thanks, Mike. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Mike Erse, international tax partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services practice and former U.S. International Tax Services leader. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's current International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.